I'm John Cross. My wife Kathy and I have had the privilege of being part and members of Lakeside Community Church for the past several years. We've been here even before we moved up to Algoma permanently. Uh, we did that in 2018 when I retired as an engineer in the Chicago area. It's not surprising that some of you may be thinking, I've seen you around, but you always seem kind of quiet and reserved. You're right. I am an engineer. I always have a pencil or a pen in my pocket and a pad of paper not too far away. There's a standing joke among engineers, and yes, engineers do tell jokes, that when you think about an engineer, there's only two types of engineers. Introverted engineers and extroverted engineers. And that it's really very simple to tell the difference. If you're speaking to an introverted engineer, they will be looking down at their shoes. But if you're speaking to an extroverted engineer, they will be looking down at your shoes. <laughs> I had to tell you that was a joke in advance because that is engineering humor. <laughs> you see, engineers don't think like other people. Take this bottle of water, for instance. If you're an optimist, you'll say it's half full. If you're a pessimist, you'll say it's half empty. A wise engineer won't say either of those things. In fact, he will ask a question. Why is this bottle twice as large as it needs to be? Over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities to work with a large number of engineers and get to know them on a personal basis. They all had great knowledge in their field of expertise. If it was a structural engineer I was working with, they would quickly be able to explain how the loads that are placed on the roof of this building translate to the joists and horizontal members and take that load and move it out to the columns, translating it to vertical loads down the column lines, passing it to the foundations. They understand and have the knowledge of how buildings work. But only a few of those engineers would I consider wise. When I think about wise engineers, certain names and faces come to my mind. They are probably names that, that you have never heard. Clyde Baker, who designed the foundations for most of the super tall buildings in the world. The late Fosler Kahn, the structural engineer on the John Hancock building and Sears Tower, now called Willis in Chicago. Henny de Klerk, who wrote the Southern African Manual of Steel Construction during the difficult days of apartheid. Mohammed Etanay, world-renowned expert who wrote the book on progressive collapse and resilience. Les Robertson, who recently passed away, and his wife, also a structural engineer, Sateen Shi, 
who designed World Trade Center One and World Trade Center Two in New York City. Les had reached out far beyond his own level of expertise and drew in other engineers to design that structure, even wind engineers to look at the impacts that were taking place. And he and Sautine wrote personal letters answering every letter that he received from the family member of someone who passed away on 9-11. John Magnuson, whose Seattle engineering firm has designed most of the large stadiums used in Major League Baseball and the NFL, with roofs or without roofs. When my wife Kathy and I see John, Kathy always asks him, did you really design the Seahawks stadium to be the loudest stadium in the NFL? John just smiles and says nothing. What set these men and women apart? Clearly they had knowledge and understanding of what they did. But why do I consider them wise engineers? They knew how to listen. They discussed alternative ideas, but didn't argue about them. Their concern was with the quality of the design, not their own ego. They saw the big picture, not just a little piece of a bigger solution. They were firm and confident in their own knowledge, but always open to review by their peers. They put facts ahead of opinions, and they gave credit where credit was due. Regretfully, I've also worked with a lot of engineers that I would consider unwise. In fact, I might even call them foolish. And believe me, I listened to Brian's message last week, and I am not going to give you a list of those names. This message is going on the internet, and it will be archived on the Lakeside website. I know better than to say things I shouldn't say. But let me be clear, those unwise or foolish engineers still knew their stuff. They had knowledge and understanding. They were excellent when it came to the technical aspects of the project, but they were unwise. They were narrow in their focus, failing to see the big picture of the project. They were driven by their ego. They wanted it to be their design. They were jealous of the work of others. They were argumentative. They resisted correction and review by their peers. They were difficult to work with, and they often expressed their opinions before all the facts were known. These are the engineers you've seen recently on television talking about the failure of the condominium in South Florida. A wise engineer would answer the question, what caused that failure? With three words, we don't know. But yet you see many jumping to conclusions. They might say we don't know yet, but there'll be a but after it, projecting what the failure might have been caused by. 
The fact is, we don't know. Wise engineers, unwise engineers. James saw that same divide between the wise and the unwise in the early church. He begins the section that we're looking at this morning, James 3, 13 to 18, with a simple question directed to his fellow Christians. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? His question is bookend with two thoughts. Back in verse 1 of this very chapter, he warns his readers that not many of them should strive to become teachers because of the responsibility involved. And then in verse 1 of the next chapter, he acknowledges the fact that among them, the ones that are listening to him, there are many quarrels and fights. In between, he asks this question, who is wise and understanding? James is telling his readers who they should be listening to and aspiring to become like, to avoid quarrels and fights that they are experiencing. After that posing that, excuse me, after posing that question to them, James answers his own question. Who is wise and understanding among you? If you have a Bible or a smartphone with you, please follow along as I read James's answer. It will also be on the screens. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be discord and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James tells us that wisdom is not just reflected in knowledge and understanding, but also in conduct and character. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James often marries two themes together. As Brian shared a few weeks ago, James didn't write to us about being hearers or doers of the word. He didn't talk about faith or works. He talked about being hearers and doers of the word. He talked about faith and works. And now, here he doesn't write just about wisdom or understanding, but rather he adds that wisdom and understanding together 
are reflected in one's character through good conduct and meekness. Wisdom is not a choice between knowledge or character. James is saying that wisdom is a reflection of both knowledge and character. In the next several verses, James paints a picture of what the lack of wisdom looks like and what true wisdom looks like. First, he addresses the lack of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. James is not the Apostle Paul. Paul grew up and was trained as a Pharisee. Pharisees, just like engineers today, love their checklists. Do this and this and this, but not this and this and this. I have a checklist every day in a notebook of what I should do, what I need to accomplish. And as every task is checked off, it gives me great satisfaction. In fact, I have a file cabinet in our storage room filled with every notebook I did my checklists in all the way back to the 1980s. I am an engineer. When we moved, I was going to throw all of those away, but my wife Kathy encouraged me not to. She said, those are the record of your life. You know, I thought when I retired, I would stop making lists. That lasted two weeks. I even make to-do lists for when we go on vacation. I am an engineer and probably would have made a pretty good Pharisee as well. Paul was a Pharisee. He loved his lists. And when we see a list in one of his letters, we can assume that the intent was that each of the items that he indicated needed to be checked off. But James and his big brother Jesus didn't grow up in a big city. They grew up in a small town of no great consequence in the countryside. They weren't trained as Pharisees. They were trained as carpenters. And when they used words, it wasn't to create a list. It was to paint pictures. So when we look at the words in verses 14 and 15, we shouldn't think of them as a checklist to check things off of, but that those words allow us to paint a picture in our mind of what an unwise person looks like. Listen again to those words. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, the need to be number one, boastful, false to the truth, not just telling an occasional lie, but consistently contradicting what is known to be true. Earthly, measuring success from a human perspective. Unspiritual, demonic. And what is the result? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, 
there will be disorder and every vile practice. The lack of wisdom is evidenced by jealousy and selfish ambition, and the result is disorder and every vile practice. That's quite a picture for us to consider, but the one that is all too common in the world around us, and maybe even in our own lives. But then James, James changes gears and begins to paint a picture of what true wisdom, wisdom from above, is like. He writes, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. But even those words don't do justice to the picture that James is painting. Because each of those words actually carries a sense that goes beyond the word itself. The picture that James is painting is of a wisdom that is purer than pure. Not just peaceful, but peaceable, bringing peace to others. Gentler than gentle, more reasonable than reasonable, more merciful than just showing mercy. Fruitful, juster than just, sincerer than sincere, with no hint of hypocrisy. And the result? James tells us, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. An eerily rep reminiscent statement of his brother's own words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Those are impactful words, but the picture they paint is even more vivid. Who do you see in your mind's eye as I read those words? Who do you think James saw in his mind as he was painting with those words? I think we can certainly make an educated guess. Back in the first week of this series, Brian alluded to the challenges that James would have faced growing up with a perfect big brother. I want you to speculate a bit with me on those challenges and the relationship that would have existed between James and his big brother, Jesus. James was a typical boy who sometimes forgot to do his homework. His big brother never forgot to do his homework. James complained occasionally about what was for dinner. His big brother never grumbled about what was being served. James would forget to do his chores. His big brother never avoided doing his. When James lied to cover up a misdeed, he knew his big brother never lied. There were times when James wasn't respectful to his parents, not his big brother. When a mistake was made in the carpenter shop, guess whose fault it was? It was never his big brother's. 
When James fought with his younger brothers and sisters, his big brother was always the peacemaker. James never heard the compliments that his big brother received. James never received the same opportunities that his big brother received. James never saw his mother Mary look at him quite the same way that she looked at his big brother. It was like she knew that there was something special about Jesus and not him. It wasn't easy growing up with a perfect big brother. I know that from personal experience. My brother was eight years older than I was. He was killed when I was seven years old. Over the next years, anything he ever did that was wrong was forgotten or turned into a funny story. He was an extrovert. I was shy. He was adventurous. I was cautious. He was the picture of health. I was sickly. He could carry a tune. I couldn't come close. He was artistic. I might be able to draw a straight line. I could go on and on. And I want to make clear that my parents never said to me, why can't you be like Alan? And I'm sure that Mary never said to James, why can't you be like Jesus? But there was always that sense of not measuring up, that sense of jealousy. It wasn't easy having a perfect brother. But for James, it got worse. It was only natural that James and Jesus would be working together in the carpenter shop. The quality of James's work wouldn't have compared to the quality of Jesus's work. It probably drove James crazy when Jesus wouldn't charge a poor customer for the work that was performed. And James was probably incensed when Jesus walked out of the carpenter shop, never to return. James, now in his 20s, would have had to pick up the slack, work longer hours, run the shop, and care for his mother and younger siblings. His brother had dumped all of that on him, all of the family responsibility. In James's mind, he probably asked the question, why didn't Jesus just get married like everyone else, raise a family and stay here and share the load? But then it got worse still. His big brother was out teaching and preaching in the countryside, followed around by a ragtag band that were hanging on his every word. When customers came into the carpenter shop, they made comments. Have you heard what your big brother is up to? Do you know that your big brother has picked a fight with the Pharisees? What's your big brother going to do next? Is he going to pick a fight with the Romans? Do you know that your brother is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? Did you hear that your big brother can do miracles and heal people? Is your big brother really the Messiah? He wasn't much of a Messiah when he was in Nazareth. 
What kind of a cult is your big brother mixed up in? Is your big brother losing it? I don't think James said, well, he's a great guy, and I'm proud of him. No. He organized an intervention. James and his mother and all of his other brothers went to see Jesus. This wasn't to have a family picnic. For James, his brother had become an embarrassment. They went to confront him, to get him to come home, to slow down, to back off. The confrontation was so important that it's recorded by three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And how did James's big brother react? Jesus refused to see them. He disowned them by asking, who are my mother and brothers? And then he pointed to the crowd, not to them, and said, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. James must have been furious. But it even got worse. His big brother wandered around the countryside for three years. Rich customers stopped coming to the carpenter shop, afraid to be associated with the family of that crazy man, the troublemaker from Nazareth. James didn't even want to talk about his brother. And then his big brother got himself arrested. Why? He claimed to be God. His big brother, God? This has to end. But it still got even worse after that. His big brother was convicted and sentenced to death by crucifixion. The shame of that sentence on his big brother, the shame of that sentence on James, his family, and generations following would have been severe. That would have been their reputation. They would forever be known as a family of a convicted criminal who believed he was God. How could his big brother do that to him? James would have nothing to do with it. His mother Mary went and saw his big brother be crucified. James was nowhere to be found. He wanted to be as far away as possible. And as a final insult to James, his big brother told one member of that crazy band of disciples to take his mother, Mary, into his home and care for her. That should have been James's job. But for James, at least now it was over. His big brother was dead, and maybe, just maybe, people would forget about him. But when it couldn't get any worse, it did. His big brother's body was gone. Some people said it was stolen. Some people said that maybe even James stole it. Others said that his big brother was alive, 
and that they had seen him. But James knew better. He knew that if the Romans crucified you, you were dead. But the talk and the rumors persisted, and James became more and more distressed. How could his big brother do this to him? Why can't this all end? And then when James least expected it, he looked up. And there, standing in front of him, was his big brother. Not a ghost, not an apparition, not a spirit, but his big brother Jesus in the flesh. We don't have any record of that conversation, the conversation that took place between them, and I don't even want to suggest one. It may have been that no words were even spoken. Because at that moment, James knew that Jesus wasn't just his big brother, but that he was everything he had claimed to be God himself. James finally came to grips with the reality that his purer than pure, gentler than gentle, juster than just, more reasonable than reasonable, more merciful than merciful, full of righteousness and peace, big brother, was no longer the object of his jealousy and rivalry, but now became his Messiah, Savior, and Lord. If you were to ask James whose picture he painted, if you were to ask James who was the wisest man you ever knew, I have little doubt that he would say, my big brother Jesus. Of all the men and the women of the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, the one that I wish that I could sit down with and have a conversation with would be James. He went from being a bitter, angry, jealous, selfish, an unspiritual 20-year-old something to one of the most respected, knowledgeable, and wisest leaders of the first century church. But it wasn't just his knowledge that earned him that respect. It was his character as well. Gone were the bitterness and jealousy, replaced by purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, the fruit of the Spirit, justice, and sincerity. James had become like his big brother. How did that occur? It wasn't an accident that James began his letter, this letter, with a brief comment about wisdom in the fifth verse of the first chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And James did ask. As James got older, the Christians around him gave him a nickname, Old Camel Knees. Not because he had knee surgery, 
but because he spent so much of his life in prayer on his knees that they had become calloused. He was talking to his big brother. He was asking Jesus for wisdom. And he received it. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are mad at God and mad at Jesus just like James was. That's okay. Jesus understood what James felt and he went to his little brother in love and understanding. He offered him forgiveness, a new relationship, and an opportunity for a fresh start. He makes each of us that same offer today. Maybe in the midst of all of the current confusion in this world and in your life, you are searching for a wise voice to listen to. Maybe inside you are like James asking the question, who is wise and understanding? James painted a picture of what that wise person would look like. A person with knowledge and understanding who reflects the character of his big brother, Jesus. A bringer of righteousness and peace, not discord and evil actions. James challenges us to be discerning in who we listen to and allow to influence us. Or maybe you want to grow in wisdom in your own life. That is a valuable and legitimate desire. Take the challenge of James and pray for wisdom. Ask God for it. The promise in James is that if you ask for wisdom, God will answer that prayer. And then you will see our knowledge grow and our character become more and more like the character of James's big brother. Purer than pure, gentler than gentle, juster than just, more reasonable than reasonable, and more merciful than merciful. And we will become a messenger of peace, not jealousy and discord. That is my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the relationship that existed between James and his big brother, Jesus. Thank you that James truly saw who Jesus is. Not an object of jealousy, not someone to be angry with, but true wisdom and character. Help us accept that reality into our lives. Help us turn our lives over to James's big brother. And give us discernment in, ter in terms of who we listen to and who we're influenced by. And in our lives, help us grow in wisdom that is reflected in both knowledge and character. In your name.